0: This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Stick around for more at the end of today's program.
1: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal
2: truth. Paul said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. I mean, the resurrection took place in time and in a place and in history.
1: Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Well, Jonathan, thanks. We are joined today on the line by Dr. John Currid, who is the Chancellor's Professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's just written a book that we wanted to highlight for our listeners. It's called The Case for Biblical Archaeology. So, Dr. Currid, thanks for joining us today.
2: Uh, Good to be with you, Jonathan and James.
1: I have found in conversations with people in churches, uh, Christian folks that I'll meet, Often the subject of archaeology will come up. They will have watched something on YouTube or read something in a uh, uh, popular media, and it's it's fascinating to them. And I wonder if you could lay out, though, in a broad sense, how you see archaeology fitting into uh, our study of the scriptures. Because oftentimes the way in the sensational archaeological finds, uh, which people hear about or read about, are um, uh, 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 they don't exactly address the kinds of issues that, that you lay out in this book. So could you talk to us about why Christian folks should care and the kinds of things they should be interested in in terms of archaeology and the Bible?
2: Sure, that's uh, that's a great question. I think that a lot of people in our circles and evangelicalism look at archaeology to prove the Bible. I don't look at it that way. It's uh, truth, not proof. And my view is, and I. I'm not an evidentialist. I'm a presuppositionalist, and therefore, uh, I don't think the Bible needs to be proven. I think it stands well enough on its own, as Spurgeon once said. Uh, defending the Bible is like defending a lion. Uh, it, you know, it defends itself quite well. And so, what we're looking for is truth and confirmation and illustration of uh, of the Scriptures. So that'd be the first thing I'd, I'd say to that. The second is um, I think we've been greatly affected by things like the Indiana Jones movies, a lot of what we call pop archaeology, these sensational finds. I'm not going to name any names, but I remember not too, you know, a few years ago that somebody said they found the uh, Ark of the Covenant in a cave in, in, in Ethiopia and it had, still had blood on it. But they happened they, they happen to forget their camera that day. So, uh, or, you know, they found the uh, Egyptian chariot wheels in the, in the Red Sea or things like that. That does us a disservice, I think, because archaeology is just really a lot of hard work. It's a lot of academic slogging. Uh, we do find great things, uh, but we don't need to do the pop archaeology uh, would be my position. I wasn't going to
3: ask this question, but I'm tempted to ask very briefly, do you own a felt hat or a bullwhip?
2: I hate the fact that you asked that question because All I right. actually but do. I have an original Indiana Jones felt hat. When that movie first came out, they were selling them in stores and my wife bought me one. I All still right. have it. So I don't wear it, but I still have it.
1: Okay. Well, then, then you're <laughs> off the hook. Okay. Good. I liked how you quickly blamed your wife. There's a there's a long, long tradition of that, biblically speaking. Um I'm
2: a pastor, so I'm used to doing that from the pulpit, you know. <laughs> I
1: I wonder though to expand upon what you just said. So there are things that do archaeology a disservice in our communities. What are the things though that archaeology does bring uh to our understanding of the scriptures? Are there are there are there particular examples that you would give of of significant archaeological finds not sensationalize the kind that you described earlier but significant finds that do help expand our, our understanding of the biblical world or or how, how does how does that work that interface between archaeology and and the bible
2: yeah another great question um that I've thought through a lot and you know we're we're in a time that's uh, the Millennials and so forth there and I don't want to pick on them all uh, but it's very a historical time that history really doesn't matter and and who cares about history and those different types of things but what archaeology helps us to do with the Bible is to show the earthiness of the scriptures that they were given in uh, time place and history and I think that's really important. You know, Paul said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. I mean, the resurrection took place in time, and in a place, uh, and and in history. So it it sets, sets the Bible into this, what we call the realia. It really happened. It's really real. And sometimes I think we forget about that. I think our Congregants forget about that, and uh, so I think it's important to remind them of that very case. Now, regarding some of the, uh, the finds that, that have been made, they're, they're spectacular and they're real. Things like the Rosetta Stone that was found by Napoleon's army in 1799 uh, gave us uh, uh, the window into translating the hieroglyphs. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the earliest uh, manuscripts we have of the scriptures from 2nd century B.C. Uh, these are great finds that really help us to, to understand the scriptures and to show the earthiness of the scriptures.
3: I wonder if I could take off on that. You said that they help us to understand the scriptures. Early in the book, you say that archaeology is the systematic study of the material remains of human behavior in the past. Um, much of what we're finding may not have featured exactly in any particular biblical narrative. That door frame or that pile of potsherds um, wasn't actually used by a biblical character in a biblical event. But what, what does sort of entering into the remains of that material world do to illumine the text? Uh, for the layman reading it, or for the pastor preaching it, how does it, how does it give um, vividness or texture uh, to the text?
2: I've been uh, a field archaeologist at the site of Bethsaida, which is a, a New Testament site on the Sea of Galilee, and what we've uncovered there is a fishing village, and it's the hometown of of John, Andrew—I mean, uh, Peter, Andrew, and Philip—and uh, we found all sorts of fishing gear. Uh, my my area of excavation was in the New Testament domestic quarter, so we were finding what their houses were like, what. Um, you know, what it was like to be a fisherman in in those particular days—it's hard work. It's you know, sunrise to the sunset. These guys were hardy uh, people, hardy men uh, who were following following uh, Christ in, in in Galilee, and they were poor indeed. Um, and that's who Jesus chose uh, to bring the gospel to the world was through those those types of men. So I find it enlightening. Uh,
1: spiritually as well as physically enlightening. You talk at the beginning of the book uh, about geography, and it struck me that the, the the maps in the back of most people's Bibles may be their their first encounter, in a sense, with the ancient world, because these are not just place names that are difficult to pronounce, but they actually were somewhere, and and we can understand the relationships between them. I wonder if you could Talk a little bit about that, the necessity of just narrowing in on that one thing, of, of understanding biblical geography, which is a part of our understanding of, of the ancient world.
2: Yes. Well, I'm a map guy. I just love maps. Uh, I'm not a Google map guy, but I'm a real map cartography type of guy. And In fact, I'm going to shamelessly hawk my uh, Crossway Atlas uh, that uh, was published in 2010 I think, again, it's really important to, you know, you look at Israel, it's about the size of the state of Vermont. And then you see uh, the variety of, of climate uh, from the Galilee, which is lush and rainy down to the Dead Sea, where you uh, get no rain at all and nothing lives in the Dead Sea and so forth. And they're not that many uh, miles apart. I mean, Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level the Dead Sea, 1,200 feet below sea level, and they're 14 miles apart. Uh, so for us to, and you know, and Jesus uses such examples of the man coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And, and, and so it just, it makes it come alive, I think, if we, if we know the geography. And it's helpful for our people to, to study that as well.
1: I wonder if you could expand upon that. You mentioned Jesus' own journey uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem at various points um, in his in his earthly ministry. Are there um, go to passages that you have to illustrate what archaeology or even geography adds to the discussion? In other words, you know, you, you you might think this passage is pointing you in one direction, but if you understand the the history and and the archaeology behind it, it it takes it to a different level.
2: There are a number of examples. I can think of just one now is, uh, you know, the site of Megiddo. It's a major site up in the Jezreel Valley. And uh, after the time of Solomon, we found a destruction layer there that uh, was from the time right after Solomon when the Egyptian Pharaoh Shishak came through and destroyed numerous sites uh, in, in the northern kingdom. And uh, Shishak, he records uh, his uh, his uh, military uh, campaign in Israel down in Karnak. And then uh, we have the, the destruction of the site at Megiddo. And also we found at Megiddo uh, what's called the Shishak Stele that the Egyptian king would put up to say, I conquered this site, uh, it was mine, and so forth. So you're getting... Uh, all of these moving parts coming together to uh, to confirm and to to show the history of that particular time period.
3: I wonder if you might
2: say about
3: archaeology. My own my own area of interest is sort of philosophical theology, but we're always very keen to say that philosophy is not mistress; it's handmaiden. Um, it's it's there to do service to the text and to theology. Would would you would you want to claim handmaiden status for archaeology something similar to that that it's it's something that does service to biblical exposition um, without displacing it um, something like that
2: absolutely uh, I think it's you know when you're doing an exegesis of a passage that's something that you can bring in it's like you know you bring in your Hebrew you bring in your History, you bring in uh, your theology and so forth and so on. So it's another avenue to to approach uh, the material and gain understanding of it. I think of the passage in Joshua chapter two with Rahab. uh, It says she lived in the city wall. Uh, Now we've excavated there and we found out that the houses absolutely were built. Their back rooms were the city wall of 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 Jericho. So those things can come together and they can be of interest to your people. And again. Uh, not only illustrative, but confirmatory.
3: Maybe even giving a sense of proportion. Uh, if you visit Tell Jericho or read, I think it was Bryant Wood who uh, who excavated mm-hmm. uh, Jericho in the maybe early 90s. I'm trying to remember when he did. But it, it gives you a sense, you know, when, when you're talking about, um, f- you know, child Sunday school felt board uh, stories, uh, you don't really get a sense of proportion uh, is that another aspect of this? Just getting a just getting a real a sense of real life proportion of the place uh, of these events that matter so much to us.
2: Uh, that's correct, and that's why I encourage people, uh, I encourage pastors and everyone, to make sure they go there at least once in their life, because they see these things and they'll never read the Bible uh, the same way again, because they'll be able to picture what the places were like and so forth. So yeah. Um I don't know if you haven't been, I encourage you to go. Uh and even, even to dig is uh is an exciting type of thing. So
3: Jonathan and I have both been privileged in different points in our lives to have made uh visits to the whole to, to Israel uh and to the and it's uh it's a privilege. And I, I agree. I think even even when we are pastors proclaiming the narrative of redemption through Christ Jesus unfolded through the mighty acts of God and Scripture, uh, to have been able to have stood in those places and have a sense of proportion, at least I will say, concurring with your point, sort of animates uh, with some living color uh, that, that text and those events.
2: Yeah, right. And so when you get, uh, you know, the psalmist or Isaiah saying, let's go up to Jerusalem. And, you know, when you mm-hmm. go over there and that's how you get there. You have to go up and it's just, it's, it's a spiritual experience. It really is. It's uh, exciting to do that.
1: Dr. Curry, last uh, question. I, 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 uh, as I was reading the book, uh, I, I was thinking about a number of different potential audiences and, and throughout even this conversation, you've mentioned the value for pastors, but also for, for anyone really, who's a reader of the scriptures. But I'm wondering now about the book in particular who is it that you're writing this for? Who should pick up this volume? Obviously, uh, as many people as, as possible, but, but who, who is it that you had in mind as you put this together?
2: Yeah, good question. And uh, R, the publisher, asked me that when I, when I sent the book in because they weren't so sure either. Because it goes anywhere from first-year college student to, to a scholar. And everyone in between, I think, can, can glean uh, a lot from this, uh, from this particular book. I'm sure scholars would say, oh, it's not academic enough. And then the first-year college student will say, well, it's too academic. So uh, that means I probably hit the mark.
1: Well, we're, we're grateful for your work on the book, and uh, we're grateful for your time with us today. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, for this conversation. Absolutely.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. So, James, uh, one of the things that I always fear when we get a book like this in the mail is that it's going to be unattractive or it's not going to have footnotes or, you know, something that's that ultimately makes the whole uh, presentation less than satisfying. And uh, I would say this is impressive. This is a a well illustrated volume. Everything is put together nicely and it's easy to follow. It's well organized. and, And it does have some excellent um, for further reading elements at the end of each chapter. So that if you were actually interested in diving deeper, I, I, as as I look through it, um, he he gives you some good pointers uh, in terms of where to go. Jonathan, you, well,
3: first of all, a, a badly produced archaeology volume is just a bane. Um, it, it really is. You really need You really need nice paper, and you need nice images. PNR really did that for this John Currid volume. Um, Also, you want a good guide, and John Currid has not only expertise, but long years of experience both in the field and as a teacher, and is a great guide to the subject of biblical archaeology. The other thing I appreciated is at the very outset of the book, he does a good job framing what the goals and the objectives are. Uh, you and I have both had the privilege at different times in our life of, of being able to dig on site of a potentially or actually biblical site. Um, and I, we even talked with John Currid off the air. My whole story of digging archaeology is about digging in dirt for 10 hours and then washing the stuff that I dug up at the end of the day to find out that it was nothing and then getting up the next day to go dig in the same hole again. Um, and right. I, I like that he, he is not promising that archaeology is a great deal more than this. It's, not, it's interesting, but it requires a great deal of patience to sort of receive the payoff. This is a book that I think sort of brings together um, some, of those, some of those payoffs without sensationalizing them
1: yeah I, I think that's right. i I, I think it's um, there are a lot of people that I meet, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the conversation who are interested in archaeology, but I'm not always sure if they are interested in it in in what it really is um, right. as opposed to what they might think it is or even what they might hear in certain places. So this book really puts it together in a competent way and a helpful way. It's a good introductory volume. And uh, and and we commend it to our our listeners. And and I agree with you that he was probably the right the right guy to write this book. Hats off to him and to PNR. I agree. All right. Well, thank you to our listeners. Uh, if you are interested in this topic or interested in this book, you can go to PlaceForTruth.org. Click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be an option there for you to enter for the possibility of winning a copy of the Case for Biblical Archaeology, subtitle of which is Uncovering the Historical Record of God's Old Testament People. But whether you're interested in this particular uh, item or not, we are grateful that you have given us some of your time. We'd invite you to participate in the conversation further. You can email us, give us a review. Um, wherever it is that you listen to this podcast, that's always helpful for us. Pass along the podcast to others whom you think might be helped by it. If you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Both of those sites have a donate button on them. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
0: We've all faced unprecedented challenges here of late, and the church has not been immune. Unable to gather, many have drifted away. Still others languish in churches that have forgotten the creeds and confessions that give clarity and focus to our faith. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church, and we need your help. To be salt and light in a dying world, we need a strong and committed church, equipped with the truth and ready to serve the gospel. Your prayers and financial gifts enable us to produce and deliver solid resources from trusted authors, teachers, and speakers in print, online, at our signature events, and on the air. You will make a difference for today and for eternity when you give online at alliancenet.org/.donate or call 1-800-488-1888.